This is the Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason and the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and co-founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we present a conversation pre-recorded on July 20th, 2019 with Stephen Aronson. Steve received a Ph.D. in clinical psychology from the University of Connecticut in 1970. He taught as assistant professor of psychology in the early 70s at Arizona State and Alfred University. He also served on staff at hospitals in Phoenix and Maine. After three years of community mental health practice, he founded North Country Consultants, LLC, in 1975 to provide training and clinical services throughout Maine. He taught family practice to medical students at Maine Medical Center and designed and taught the first year of behavioral science at New England College of Medicine. In 1979, he co-authored a pioneering book, The Stress Management Workbook, an Action Plan for Taking Control of Your Life and Health, with Michael Masia, M.D. In the late 1990s, he co-founded Mental Health Associates of Maine, a multidisciplinary psychological psychiatric practice. Steve retired from clinical practice after 43 years of practice in 2013. Intellectually and emotionally, Steve has always been drawn to the mystery of existence. His interest in consciousness, as one of the most profound of these mysteries, led him to psychology as a career. He submitted himself to nearly 20 years of his own analysis in a variety of disciplines, culminating in 12 years of Jungian analysis, during which he came to see the reality of the collective unconscious and the universality of symbols in religion and dreams. In 1982, Steve experienced a vision that was an overture to a series of synchronous events culminating in his discovery of the Gurdjieff work. He has dedicated his inner search to the methods of G.I. Gurdjieff since that time, accepting the responsibilities of leading groups studying this system. Steve's immersion in spiritual psychology led him to an interest in esoteric religion, particularly esoteric Christianity, and a recognition of the universality of the core of all traditions. It also profoundly influenced his understanding of the structure and function of the human psyche and his practice of clinical psychology. He has made a number of presentations to the All and Everything International Humanities Conference and participates in groups in Portland, Maine, Moscow, Russia, and Toronto, Canada. Although loving theoretical exploration of both psychological and spiritual questions, he remains dedicated to making the esoteric ideas come alive as actual subjective experiences. He believes that only through direct experience can such ideas find real meaning so that the system becomes the teacher. His primary objective has been to discover and share the practical application of these ideas and methods to the inner world of people. Steve is a founding member of the Seekers Cafe, a website supporting an online community dedicated to creating an effective portal to genuine spiritual practice. Stephen Aronson, welcome to the Mystical Positivist. Thank you, Stuart. Robert. Well, we're we're delighted to have you on the show. 
And uh, we will begin as we begin with uh, all our first-time guests, which is to invite you to cast your mind back to youth and childhood uh, and ask you, in so doing, to focus on any experiences that, in retrospect, you might point to and say, ah, that was a precursor, that was a harbinger of the direction that my small W work and capital W work would take later in life. Oh, what an interesting question. This is something I've periodically given a lot of thought to, but very few people seem to be interested in. Um, so, I don't know if it was my first dream, but it was very, very early when I was very young. And I had it twice, only twice in my life have I had exact recurring dreams. Mm -hmm. Second one didn't seem to have any significance whatsoever. So maybe recurrence doesn't. <laughs> but and this is so hard to describe, I can still see it. But it was like I was both viewing and somehow inside of, that's the way dreams are, mm -hmm. uh, being different levels at the same time. And uh, it was like a, a lattice work of crossing lines that disappeared into infinity. Mm -hmm. uh, I've never been able to really describe this very well. But in any case, the two simultaneous overwhelming feelings. One was that um, I was being crushed in infinite density, and the other, that I was expanding into infinite expanse of openness, both at the same time. And it occurred twice. So reflecting on that from time to time, I just wondered, well, as a, I'm not a Freudian, but uh, my Jungian analyst said, ah, maybe that was a memory of coming through the birth canal. But I'm more inclined to speculate that it was a memory of the moment of conception coming out of the infinite, non-mass, formless void and being incarnated into this tiny little piece of matter into, into the density. And by comparison, the density was infinite. They were, they were not in any way commensurate but yet I was experiencing them simultaneously. So that's probably my earliest dream. That I how, how old were you when you had the dream? I don't know. Very, I'm going to guess three, four, maybe five, uh, really little. And did the, the second occurrence of this dream occur a short period of time after the first one, or was it late, later in your life? I was still when I was very young, I, but I can't tell you whether it was months or a couple of years. Okay. I know that it, I know it happened twice. Got it. I also remember probably when I was maybe tenish or so. I'm just guessing at the age. Pre-pubescent. Lying in my bed and as um, well, I don't know if everyone, but number of kind of people I hang out with uh, was experimenting with visualizing, looking down at my body on the bed, and then rising up and seeing the top of the house and then the surrounding community and going further out and then the earth and going further and further. 
And um, there came a point where there was this overwhelming emotional sense that I was actually at the very edge, really touching the hem of understanding. Mm. Really, really understanding. And then it vanished and I was in my bed again. That, um, that made an impression. I tried that experiment a number of times over the years, uh, but never came that close to whatever that was. Hmm. It was, I mean, do you recall any, um, I mean, you, you characterized it as, as the sort of thing that people like you would do at that time, I guess, in your life. And I'm wondering if there was, but there were, if there was any sort of, uh, instigation. No. That you were aware of. From the asset? No. Okay. No, it was, this is just something that was internal to me and I never talked to anybody about it. Got it. In my, in my family, you know, my friends. It probably was in my middle adulthood when uh, I met some like-minded people or I was in, an, in my Jungian analysis that, that I shared that kind of thing. But, no, there was there was no one around me growing up who um, seemed to be receptive to that. Mm-hmm. Now, there was a, uh, I asked my parents, do you believe in God? And the answer was yes. Uh, but there were no details. Well, why? You know? <laughs> so there, there, wasn't, there wasn't any support for that in my childhood. The, the single conversation, which may have lasted five seconds uh, in my memory of a spiritually, really supportive nature mm-hmm. with my grandfather, uh, wasn't until years later when I, I reflected back on this and realized he was a Mason, so he, he may have gotten this from them. Uh, but I remember uh, him holding out his hand, pointing to each finger and saying, it seems to us that we're each individuals like these fingers, but we're not, we're just fingers on one hand. I don't remember what came before, don't remember what came after, but that stuck with me. And that was quite un, unusual in my surroundings. So as, as a boy, I was very interested in mystery, mm-hmm. mystery stories, ghost stories, real life science fiction, dinosaurs, uh, UFOs. There was a time in my late teens and early 20s, I was a member of NICAP, the National Investigation Committee on Aerial Phenomenon. You sound like my childhood. <laughs> uh, I did an internship in California where I met another man who was the head of some local chapter of this. And um, I gave some talks at uh, UC Berkeley, maybe surfaces. I, I did some talks out in the, in the area. I just have to break in and say at one point um, when I was a kid, my, I was very excited because my father took me to a lecture of J. Allen Hynek. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, we're probably the only one listening to this who knows who that name is. (laughs) (laughs) That was, I'm guessing our listeners don't know. So maybe you can explain. He was a famous UFOologist at the, you know, probably in the uh, 60s, 70s, um, thereabouts. No, but he was a genuine scientist. Oh, yeah. And this was a hard science guy. Yeah, he took the the subject seriously and he wasn't wasn't, uh, loony about it. He he had to investigate it. Yeah, just recently, uh, as part of my uh, uh, legacy, now that I'm 76, I've been going through a lot of old papers. Coming across, I had long forgotten about mm-hmm. some 
obviously I wrote, but I don't even remember writing them. And one was like a 12 or 14 page summary of UFO research, uh, written like a good journalist, like good journalism training, who, what, when, where, why, how, you know, that wasn't editorializing. And um, it's really well researched. I don't even remember, who did I write this for? It must have been the NICAP guys. And I had a couple of interesting experiences. I went on two field investigations. Hmm. Uh, um, what age would you have been at that time? I was on my internship. I did an internship with the uh, Palo Alto VA in California. It was would have been 67, 68, I think I was out there. Okay. And because I was working for the government, I had a lot of latitude. So I'd go to the hospital if I wanted to, and I'd go out do more interesting things if I wanted to. So we got a report, I think it was in San Mateo, isn't that just south of San Francisco? Mm -hmm. uh, that there'd been a, a sighting and uh, electricity fell, reporting figures floating above the ground. And mm. so uh, I was asked to go out and investigate this. Really, I spent the day canvassing the neighborhood. Lots of friendly people. Everyone was interested in talking. And what I finally pieced together from all, it was like a jigsaw puzzle. So, there were some kids who had learned that somehow if you get a plastic, you know, um, uh, when you go to the dry cleaner, you get yeah, a laundry bag. Laundry bag. You know, it's very light. And somehow if you... Uh, tied it up and hung candles underneath it would fill with uh, the heat. And so they experimented. Sure enough, it floated up and glowed. And then it drifted away from them. And they panicked. So, and so they started running after it. Now they were wearing sneakers. So when they crossed the street down at the far end, came out of the dark, briefly under the uh, lamp and disappeared, made no sound. So people at the end of the street saw this strange glow in the sky. And then some others saw these images that made no sound scurrying about. And then the lights went out. Hmm. The power crashed. So obviously very significant events. Until I talked to the power company, they said, yeah, we had a transformer issue. What time was it? Yeah, that was the time. And I thought, this is really interesting how really sincere, well-meaning, often educated people, you know, see a little fragment of something. And it gets stitched together into a, a remarkable story that has no <laughs> no validity in its total. Uh, went to investigate another sighting up in uh, Petaluma. <clears throat> this guy lived up so well. Petaluma was this was quite barren. It was very rural. Mm -hmm. so he had a, he had a he had a pet wolf and or coyote or, or something. And he had this story about this tiny little dot that first appeared, got bigger and bigger, and then it disappeared and went away again. Uh, the description was identical to what you read in the uh, in the uh, uh, book on the fourth the, the fourth dimension, you know, from the late 1800s about the uh, flat flatland. Oh yeah. The pencil appears. Oh yeah. And it gets bigger. I mean, yeah. that was his description. Uh, but what are you going to do with that kind of story? So I, uh, I got involved in other things at that time. I was very interested in parapsychology. We can yeah. come back to the UFOs later because the recent reports by the government and some of the military videos are interesting. I don't know what to do with that. Yeah. 
but it really has nothing to, nothing really to do with my deeper spiritual questions because if, if there's life elsewhere, which I presume there is, and if it's visiting us, which um, I have no idea, uh, the question is still, where did we all come from? You know, what is consciousness? You know, uh, so I don't, I don't any longer get very excited about, oh my God, we'll discover other intelligent life. Well, duh, it's not going to lead us any deeper into, you know, the real mystery of things. It, uh, even if life was seeded here from elsewhere, you know, that theory, fine. Yeah. So who, who seeded them? It's just uh, an endless regression if you want to go in that direction. So it's very interesting parapsychology. And uh, when I was young, read a lot of those books, I was quite amazed. Though I didn't, when I was young, have any experiences that could confirm any of that. And when I was in my 20s and 30s, if I, if I uh, met uh, someone who claimed to be a medium, a fortune teller, I'd take them to lunch or dinner or something, you know, show me, show me, prove me. Show me what you got, show me what you got. Uh, never had a satisfactory experience with any of those people during that time. Somehow, and I don't recall how this came about, but I came to the attention of um, some legitimate fellows, uh, Stanley Kripke, who, um, what's you call that, uh, photography. Oh, Karelian. Karelian photography, yeah. Stanley Kripke, and a physician in Montague Ullman, they were at Maimonides Hospital in New York. And um, and I have no memory of how I got there, but I remember sitting in, in the offices and we had sandwiches and talked. And they must have been very excited to have this young PhD fella, you know, who might be joining them and, and provide some more energy for for this work since the stuff at Duke just seemed to be going in circles. Duke University's parapsychology. And so I did have an experience, though. Uh, they were doing some research at that time uh, on out-of-body experiences. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was with a small group, maybe three or four other people over at the hospital who did doing this research. And they said, so let's, let's show you what the experimental paradigm is. We need a volunteer. So I volunteered. They let me into this little room, and there was a bed. People would sleep at night, and I hooked up the... Uh, uh, EEG equipment, so they can monitor my brain waves, and they all went into the other room, monitoring room, and I'm lying there. And over the end, one of them says to me, "Okay, Steve, so let's run an experiment. Uh, see that box taped to the ceiling at the far wall at the end of the bed." And I looked up, and yeah, it was a box taped up near the ceiling. I hadn't noticed it. So he said, "Tell me what you think is in there." And I got angry. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> I guess not. I, I wanted, uh, as a boy, I thought there must be a deeper reality in all this. And I do remember time when I, I think I was 12 or 13, I was standing in my bedroom, and I suddenly experienced myself as looking out through my eyes as if they were portholes. And mm -hmm. I was back inside of the brain, mm -hmm. out through these windows. And the feeling really was one of uh, sadness, loneliness, and fear. Hmm. Nope. Was I the only one back here? Was uh -huh. there anybody else? Would I be alone like this all of my life? 
So I recognized in myself uh, friction between the need to find some proof of this deeper reality, uh, but also recognizing that that need was so strong that I could be susceptible and gullible. Mm -hmm. And so for a long time, we'll get to this part of the story later, because um, I, I mentioned, uh, uh, I think I mentioned to you guys in something I said along that I had what I call the only vision of my life when I was in my late 30s. But that event, and, and this one I'm about to tell you, and some others, I'd seen retrospect really were a, a, a confirming taste of that other reality. But I was so afraid of my suggestibility that my intellect would panic and I would back off. Hmm. So what happened was uh, I got angry. I thought they were making fun of me. Uh, how should I know what's in the box? I think I might have even cursed at him. And uh, he said, no, no, it's okay. Just take a guess. Just guess what's in the box. I said, well, okay. And so I think, well, there's a box. and Can't put much in there. It must be light. And here I am in, in Manhattan. So maybe it's a postcard. Picture postcard of what? Oh, Manhattan skyline. Okay, he said. So a few minutes. Seconds row, where he said, All right, give us another guess. I was annoyed again. We always ask people to give a bunch of guesses. Don't worry about it, just, we're just playing around here. Okay, so I gave him some more guesses. I had an image of one, and we did this uh, several times. I had an image of a, a woman dressed in uh, 1890s clothing, it was kind of cream colored. She had on long gloves. She was on a sort of maroon background. And then I had an some sort of, uh, I, you know, I don't even remember what the images now. But after a few minutes, he came in and hugged me. And he said, well, thanks very much. Uh, come out here and came out to the, where the control room with other people there. And they spread out a number of target cards. As I, I did with those experiments. He said, so just take a guess. Any of them feel, you feel anything about them. But three of them I dismissed. I only remembered one was sort of like the elk that's used in the Hartford insurance. <laughs> um, but there was um, I'd also get had an image of gardening implements in a paisley pattern and a certain maroon color and there were three of them that really were quite reminiscent and he said well pick the one that feels the most likely and I put my finger on him he says yeah that's it and they all started chatting. And again, I kept really angry. I kept my anger inwards, but I thought, these people just been fools of me. They set me up. And then I realized, no, they didn't. You know, they were serious. How did that happen? But again, that was one of those experiences that I put into a separate compartment. I mean, I couldn't replicate it. Uh, so I had, I had a few experiences like that when, when I was younger. So, um, so you haven't mentioned uh, any engagement with what I would call a, a, a spiritual practice, or certainly uh, right. work. And I'm and I'm wondering. I mean, you you've created a you've painted a picture uh, in my mind at least of of a boy and then young man who has these strong more than intimations. That there's more in heaven and earth uh, 
and is dreamt of in your philosophy. Exactly. So, 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 and, and you also spoke of, of, of this uh, skepticism that you um, not um, be credulous about stuff that you couldn't um, adduce in that, in terms of evidence, it sounds like. That's correct. So, um, so how did that lead on into a serious engagement with a kind of inquiry, um, asking seriously the question that you that you posed earlier: What are we here for? What are we, you know, et cetera? Um, how did that How did that articulation happen in your life? What happened in began to happen in my early to mid and then late thirties, and I think the the uh, first te- real teacher that I, that I had was marijuana. Okay. And at that time was very mild stuff that we grew in back of the barn. And um, I hung out with a bunch of doctors at a local hospital, and um, we all smoked a little from time to time. And I started having experiences, and they were really interesting. Like, um, Ah, that reminds me. Yeah, my first experience, very first experience, it was in graduate school. Uh, some kids had a joint, and so I said, okay. And I found myself, well, it's so hard to describe. I was out of, somehow I was detached from my body. Mm-hmm. And I became terrified that I wouldn't be able to get back. Mm-hmm. So my, I had a panic attack. And I remember them holding on to me, uh, so I said, touch, you know, hold my arms, hold my, because the sensation of my body seemed to be the w- a way I could stay connected without totally losing it. Then eventually that, that wore off, but it so frightened me, I didn't do anything for a number of years after that. But it was another very interesting experience, but I had no context in which to place it. I could not organize these things. They were just too disconnected. Mm-hmm. So in my uh, early 30s uh, w- with my friends, and it was wonderful. We lived out in rural Maine, and uh, <laughs> I had one experience with uh, music. I learned uh, to play a few chords on the guitar, and, and every Thursday uh, drive out into the mountains to this fellow's little farm. bunch of us sit around with banjos and, you know, and, uh, guitars and folk music and just wanted to discover the magic of tuning which has been very helpful mm. you know? and of course you, you've uh, you know all about tuning there was this magic moment when it's not right it's not right and then it drops right into the slot and then it's out and it's in and then it's out and I saw how, how much of life is like that that that's the feeling that uh, later on in my life I discovered uh, around emotion and the feel of when I'm on the right path and when I'm being led astray. It's like something has become attuned, and it's just like, for me, just like tuning the guitar. Hmm. And the question for me uh, during this period was, well, these are very interesting experiences, and I'd have images and visions, and, uh, 
seem to have a sense of being in contact with, with something behind the universe, the very thing I've been looking for. But it was chemically induced, so it could not possibly be real. Uh, but then it occurred to me, an experience is an experience is an experience. And I was having an experience. So you can't say experience isn't real. My interpretation of it may not, not be valid. But my experience is my experience. And if an experience is meaningful and it uh, changes you and gives you insight and seems to be useful, then it's a real something. You know? So that question was, well, where, do I, where am I going when I'm having these experiences? How is this, how is this happening? How can um, you introduce some molecules in a certain configuration and then you have these experiences. But of course, that's what we're all about. You put molecules in a certain configuration, you get bodies, <laughs> you get sensation, you get insight, you, everything is working. So uh, which one of you, you're the physicist, aren't you, Robert? No, I'm yeah, the physicist. physicist. I'm the archeologist. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's the dancing woolly masters. Everything is uh, a combination of well, molecules are too big. It's a combination of atoms, but atoms are too big. Well, subatomic particles, and if they come together in a certain configuration, you get material, and you get activity, and you get transformations of energy, and and eventually you get consciousness, and you get insight, and you get growth and development of being. And there's nothing there. There's nothing. There's no there there. It's just wonderful. Um, I wasn't quite there yet, but, but that was, then I decided that this was a real something. And it was a great teacher to me for, uh, for quite a while. The next thing that happened was uh, a friend of mine uh, told me he had met um, an Episcopal priest who was a Jungian therapist, and that this guy was really interesting and did these very intense retreats. Now, I had uh, been in psychotherapy off and on for a number of years before that. First, my childhood, because there were some very difficult things in my childhood. And uh, I had to drop out of school once because of this and um, have a very good psychiatrist who was very helpful. And then years later, I went back, uh, both because I had some difficult issues in my life I was having trouble with, but also because I knew as a therapist that I could not learn my art if I wasn't a patient. Mm -hmm. And so over the course of 20 years, I had six different therapists of varying uh, persuasion, I would say theoretically and methodologically, and um, also different degrees of talent. Uh, some of them taught me what not to do, but they were all helpful in certain ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, but this fellow uh, was an amazing teacher to me, and it was my first real introduction to Jung, because uh, in my psychological training as a PhD student, the big emphasis was on uh, behaviorism sure. and behavioral cognitive therapy, which certainly has its place, uh, particularly if you're working uh, with problems that... Um, uh, came about and are maintained at a purely mechanical level in a kind of Pavlovian sense, very mm -hmm. useful. 
but they're not useful for uh, questions of meaning. They're not quite useful for the existential questions and explorations. Um, so over the course of my psychological training, just to digress, uh, I got trained in everything from behaviorism to cognitive behavioral to gestalt to uh, some neo-Freudian, and, and finally here comes Jung, who, and, uh, but this stuff was discouraged in my graduate school. We were supposed to be rigorous scientists and not dabble in this sort of silliness. So Gestalt was considered not silliness? I'm just curious, yeah. Um, yes, it would have been considered quite silly. Okay. You know, pretending you're a table or a chair and talking to the lamp uh, would not have passed muster with my uh, my academic department, but I found it really interesting and useful. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and apparently, I've always uh, gone off on my own in terms of looking for what's interesting to me and found the people that I wanted to learn from and apprentice myself to them. So my real training as a psychologist came very little from my academic situation. It really came from my finding people who understood something mm-hmm. and becoming their student. Unfortunately, there were several of those. So this man was um, certainly a giant in my life in that sense. And at this first retreat, a couple of things happened. First, there was a young woman there who claimed she had psychic abilities. Uh, And she was there because since she was the time she was a child, she knew things she would there's no way for her to know and she couldn't get rid of this capacity and it was driving her crazy and she didn't know how to live with it. So that was her question. Mm-hmm. So immediately uh, I said, ah, another one, let's see what she's got. And we had a conversation <clears throat> and she told me a few things that I found very interesting. Like, well, how do you know that? So I said, well, when this is over, I want to make an appointment to come and talk to you because I collect people like you and you know, I want to interview you also. So she said, fine. Uh, it was a very emotionally powerful workshop. I, I felt emotions uh, in a way that I had not before because I spent my first half of my life learning to suppress them because they were dangerous and irrational. Uh, but here they were, and they were real, and they were powerful, and obviously chock full of learning. And it was really amazing. I remember that evening I came home, and I saw for the first time the reality of symbols as uh, a language of higher dimensions. Mm-hmm. And I saw the reality of the collective unconscious. Now, when I say see, I can't describe how I saw that, but you guys understand what I mean. It was, it was just, it was all of a sudden as obvious as uh, the hand in front of me. Mm-hmm. So this is very exciting. Now, my son uh, was, uh, I don't know, maybe a year and a half, two at that point. Always had trouble sleeping. I used to think he was a shark. <laughs> and so I was uh, trying to rock him to sleep uh, to calm him down. And uh, I had this experience, you might say. I fell asleep. So it, it was a dream, but it was a really prophetic dream. So again, being dreamlike, uh, being in multiple places at, at the same time, but the essential components were an oval, which wasn't until a number of years later that I 
found in images of the cosmic egg, but I didn't know any, anything about that symbolism at that time. So there's this oval, and there was a horizontal line dividing it in half. The top half was a sunny rural pastoral scene, and a farm in the distance and fields and trees and mountains. And the lower half was the starry void. Hmm. Now, in addition to the horizontal line, there was a vertical line, which I didn't understand until a long time later when I saw in The Hanged Man, and I uh, had my conversion to esoteric Christianity, and I recognized as the reality of what was really behind the symbol of the cross. Um, and hanging on this, like a fireman's pole, was a figure from the waist up in the sunlight and from the waist down in the starry void. And it was me. I was that figure. So I was both a figure and somehow I was seeing it. And there were voices coming from the void saying, let go. And the figure, me, responded, I want to, but I'm afraid. And the response was, uh, when you're ready, there'll be help. And I woke up. If my son had fallen asleep, I was just stunned. What was that? And still being quite intellectual at that point or over relying on what I thought was my intellect. I thought, I have to write this down immediately or I'll forget it. Now, in retrospect, how naive and stupid was that? But that's, that was the first impulse. So I went into the kitchen uh, and frantically looking for something to write with a piece of paper because I was sure it would evaporate. And I had all these words to write down because this required really lengthy description to get all this down. And there was a three by five card and a pencil. And I saw my hand pick up the pencil, but it didn't write words. It just drew an oval and then a slanting line through it. And I thought, oh my God, that is a symbol. And in that symbol is incorporated my entire experience. I don't need all those words. <laughs> a picture may be worth a thousand words. This picture is worth a million words. All I have to do is remember that symbol. Okay. So what then happened? I became paranoid. It occurred to me that this young woman, the psychic, must be influencing me from a distance. And that's where my anger went, was directed towards her. She's messing with my mind. Although another part of me said, that's beyond irrational, Steve. How could that be happening? So there was this split. And the, these two sides of me were, were uh, in contest with each other. So a week or two later, I went to visit her. I remember coming up to her front door. Uh, and she said, hi, Steve. I said, hi, Ronette. Come in. She said, so we have an hour. What can I do for you? What do you want? I said, just two things. I want you to prove to me that you can do what you say you can do. And I want to understand how you do it. And at the end of that hour, I left. I was satisfied of both accounts. Mm. She did have information she couldn't possibly have. Like she knew my wife was pregnant. And I recognized that she was, she was looking at uh, pictures that floated through her head, an impression she got, and she would just share them. She'd say, you know, I don't know what this is right, but how about da-da-da? And i say, oh, my God, how do you know that? And she would say, well, I don't know how I know that. But I, and I saw that she didn't understand how it happened. And that was the end of my interest in parapsychology.
because I recognized that was a dead end. You can't conduct experiments with this kind of stuff other than, you know, statistically, uh, you get a significant uh, P level with, you, you know, if you get a thousand corns and right. whatever. And, and that just was not, I didn't see that that led anywhere. So I recognized parapsychology was not an avenue. And I already had the information. I was only interested in parapsychology to see if it could convince me of a deeper reality. So I didn't need it now. A short time afterwards, within a week, I was visiting a friend of mine, uh, the man who, uh, uh, whose home I would often go to to you know, play guitar with our little, little group and uh, smoke some mild weed and listen to the tuning of strings. And Anyway, I said to him, I was in this very strange group a couple weeks ago, referring to the Jungian. And he said to me, I've been in some strange groups too. And I thought, this is surprising. I didn't know you had any interest in psychology. You like fly fishing and music. And he said, well, come here, let me show you something. So he uh, went to a room I did in, I don't know how many times, watching him tie flies and opened up uh, a cabinet. There's some books. He said, this might interest you. I take the book and I open it up and out falls three by five card with the oval and the slashing line, the exact image I had drawn. Oh. And the first feeling that came up was anger. <laughs> <laughs> He's making a fool out of me. Uh, but then the other voice said, Steve, <laughs> that's, he can't, you know? I said, what is this? He said, oh, it's just an image that came to me when I was thinking about infinity. And I looked at the book, which uh, later uh, was, was one of Maurice Nichols' commentaries on the psychological teachings of Gurdjieff and Osmetsky. And there was, there's a footnote, and I, I've, I've read those commentaries cover to cover at least twice, plus many of those commentaries, many, 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 many times. I've never discovered this page. I've never found it again. Mm -hmm. But there in the footnote, and I don't remember, the, the gist was that the, the Gospels were, were true. It, somehow in the sense that people were trying to describe experiences they were having that they didn't understand. So in, in, that, in that sense. Yeah. And a couple of things happened within the space of two seconds. So I've gone over this in my mind many times and I... I can visualize the sequence and I go 1001, 1002, and they're all in that space of two seconds. So first thing that happened was panic because I've been raised a Jew, although uh, I was, my family is quite secular. There's no real tradition there, but I was raised with a sense of uh, responsibility to the, the Jewish community because everyone wanted to kill us. And so it was up to all of us to stay alive. Otherwise we just, so, I had this sense of tribal loyalty conditioned into me sort of in a Pavlovian fashion. And I thought, I'm going to have to convert, become a Christian. They're the Christians and the enemies. They're the ones who want to kill us. How could that happen? And yet, if the Gospels were true, so there was that moment of panic. And then, uh, so here at um, so I can just tell you what the experience was. I felt and saw a homunculus rip out of my chest, 
shoot into the void, screaming and die. And I realized here I, here I was with this totally inexplicable experience. And again, I had the choice of rejecting or accepting the validity of the experience, even though I didn't understand it. Mm -hmm. And I remember that was the moment of surrender. And I looked up and I said, all right, I, I won't fight this. I have no idea what it is, but I surrender and I'll follow this. So I started reading voraciously, more, you know, give me more books. What is this? The most amazing thing. Does anybody know about this? And finally he said, well, yeah, you can go to, go talk to Keith Buzzle, who is one of the physicians at the little hospital. was on staff. I said, Buzzle knows about this? He said, yeah, just go talk to him. So I did, and yeah, he knew a lot about it. And so I started working with him for many, many years. And that was how I found the Gurdjieff work. Now, I didn't, I didn't know anything about, I'd never heard Gurdjieff. Although I vaguely remember about a year before, uh, my friend who had taken me to this Jungian retreat had this big, thick book. He said, hey, someone gave this to me. You, you got to read this. I, I don't think it's for me, but you'll really appreciate this. And I opened it up and it made no sense. And I handed it back and said, I don't have time to read this stuff. So the work, Gershop work, made an initial effort to get me and I rejected it. So it just came around the back door and whacked me. Uh, and since that time, um, I've had a lot of moments of very deep, not only insight, but but the remarkable thing for me anyway, and I'm sure it's true of all, all traditions, uh, that the, it's not only a full-bodied experience, but it's a full emotional experience as well as intellectual. And in Gurdjieff work, we, we say it's three-centered because right. you're, you're present in the, in, behind the intellect, behind the feelings, and inside the body simultaneously, which provides uh, a incredibly different um, kind of experience than just a mental insight because wherever it is you're there and and this was um, what around the early 80s that this was happening uh, I think this was probably May 2nd 1982 to be precise because I made a notation of it <laughs> very precise <laughs> Very precise. It was it was in the evening. I don't remember the time. But then you you con connected to your colleague uh, and uh, started exploring this. I'm I'm curious how and if um, you reconciled what you were being exposed to, both reading and presumably experientially. Um, in the Gurdjieff work, um, how, how that there was a recon, or if there was a reconciliation with your psychological training, your therapeutic practice, et cetera. How did, how did, how did that articulate? My interest has always been in application. I love theory. Mm -hmm. It's very exciting. But if I can't find a way to apply it, I don't see that it's of any particular use. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think pure research is great, but it's got to sit on the shelf until something gels. So 
uh, <laughs> remember in my when I was being getting my PhD and the emphasis really was on uh, research uh, really to promote the legacy of the department chairman we train all these little psychologists who would go out continue his research and promote his name and it's actually his research was interesting but not that interesting it seemed quite simplistic he came up with this amazing formula which i guess at that time was kind of controversial in psychology uh that um I'm trying to remember it now essentially said you had to take into into consideration the experience of the person who was having the experience you know and this was uh, uh directly went against a lot of behavioral stuff but that's not really interesting and we don't need to talk about that but uh, i was always looking for clinical applications at one point i was told that if i left academia to go practice really practice and it seemed to me that i should have at least 20 years under my belt as a clinician before i taught anybody clinical psychology mm -hmm. uh i was told you know if you leave you won't come we won't let you back they told me the same thing about parapsychology I remember coming back from this experience with Krippner and Allman, very excited, talked to one of my professors. Yeah. And he said, don't tell that to anyone else or we'll kick you out of here. You can't do that. So, uh, always having an issue with authority figures and wanting to uh, not get on their bad side, I put it aside because I could see there was nothing, nothing I was going to do with it at that point anyway. But I was all, always off uh, trying to do, get community clinical projects started and get students involved riding along with the police so they could understand them and working with poverty agencies. Hmm. Uh, I, but I did, I did try the academic route um, for a couple of years and I was a really great entertaining teacher. You know, my classrooms got filled, they'd be sitting in the aisles, they'd be on waiting lists and hmm. so. I was very, and I think the, the thing that made me a good teacher was my enthusiasm for the subject and my always looking for ways to help uh, people see how it was real in, in their everyday life. These are not, you know, just theories, but you can actually do something with them. They're useful. Yeah. And so looking for practical application and demonstrating practicality really grabbed people. So that's really what my interest has been. So when it came to my clinical practice, if it works, I'll use it. And I learned a lot from my own therapy. And um, Gurdjieff gave me a model of the human psych psyche that made more sense than all the others combined. Mm -hmm. I think the only psychologist who at that time, I think really had come close, had really stepped over into the other world was Jung. Mm -hmm. But my experience with Jung and uh, my Jungian analysts and a lot of Jungian students that I had met was that uh, it's very poetical and metaphorical and very powerful in that way, but in a Gurdjieffian sense, it was not three-centered. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it can be very hard to hold on to. But uh, a Jungian pr approach uh, has been very useful with people who uh, find metaphor helpful and storytelling helpful.
Not yeah. everyone's like that. Some people require a much more concrete approach. So when I discovered Gurdjieff, um, there literally was a roadmap for me about how the, how the psyche was structured and uh, how the different levels function with each other and all sorts of phenomenon, both in myself and, and others, that seemed to be disconnected and, and mysterious. All of a sudden, here's a way in which they actually fit. They came together. It made sense. Now, I didn't talk about Kirchhoff specifically in my therapy practice, and it depended on who I was working with. I'd say maybe half of the people I worked with uh, were open, really, to metaphor uh, and deeper ways of working. But I, I didn't uh, have to be very careful as a therapist that you don't impose your own values. and not trying to indoctrinate anybody, but I would use what worked. And applying my understanding of the psyche through Gurdjieff's model just was enormously helpful, even if I would then use other terminology uh, that they were more familiar with from popular psychology. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, that's an interesting way to make the teaching your own when you have to re-articulate it in a different form and have the idea still active, but yes. the representation not simply copied from the source material. Well, that seems to me to be the hallmark of um, someone who really understands something. And, and as a solution to, potential solution to the dilemma of, do you pass on a tradition exactly the way it was given to you? running the risk that as the times change and the language change and the culture changes, you're now using outmoded, you know, images and metaphors. And uh, so what is going to, what is going to work? So it seems to me that if you've really incorporated the teaching into yourself, whether it's woodworking or Zen or flute playing or whatever, if it's in you, then you can find all sorts of creative ways on your own in the moment to share something in a way different than what you were given because the essence is still there. So the yeah. essence is the key and the essence I think can only be there if you really have your own understanding. Then it comes through you in your own particular individual way. And it's gotta be because if everybody gave it just the way they were given it, it would all come out the same. We need to take a short break at the hour. You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we present a conversation pre-recorded on July 20th, 2019, with Stephen Aronson. In 1979, Steve co-authored a pioneering book, The Stress Management Workbook, An Action Plan for Taking Control of Your Life and Health, with Michael Messia, M.D., in the late 90s, he co-founded Mental Health Associates of Maine, a multidisciplinary psychological psychiatric practice. Steve retired from clinical practice after 43 years in 2013. In 1982, Steve experienced a vision that was an overture to a series of synchronous events culminating in his discovery of the Gurdjieff work. He has dedicated his inner search to the methods of G.I. Gurdjieff since that time, accepting the responsibilities of leading groups studying the system. He has made a number of presentations to the All and Everything International Humanities Conference and participates in groups in Portland, Maine, Moscow, Russia, and Toronto, Canada. 
He believes that only through direct experience can such ideas find real meaning, so that the system becomes the teacher. His primary objective has been to discover and share the practical application of these ideas and methods to the inner world of people. Steve is a founding member of the Seekers Cafe, a website supporting an online community dedicated to creating an effective portal to genuine spiritual practice. Welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, joined by co-host Dr. Robert Schmidt, director of Thai Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. In this hour, we continue our pre-recorded Zoom conversation with Stephen Aronson. In 1979, Steve co-authored a pioneering book, The Stress Management Workbook, an action plan for taking control of your life and health with Michael Messia, M.D., in the late 1990s, he co-founded Mental Health Associates of Maine, a multidisciplinary psychological psychiatric practice. Steve retired from clinical practice after 43 years in 2013. In 1982, Steve experienced a vision that was an overture to a series of synchronous events culminating in his discovery of the Gurdjieff work. He has dedicated his inner search to the methods of G.I. Gurdjieff since that time, accepting the responsibilities of leading groups studying this system. He has made a number of presentations to the All and Everything International Humanities Conference and participates in groups in Portland, Maine, Moscow, Russia, and Toronto, Canada. He believes that only through direct experience can such ideas find real meaning so that the system becomes the teacher. His primary objective has been to discover and share the practical application of these ideas and methods to the inner world of people. Steve is a founding member of the Seekers Cafe, a website supporting an online community dedicated to creating an effective portal to genuine spiritual practice. Right. I mean, I, I certainly have experienced for myself, and I see this with in other traditions and other teachers that often when someone has worked closely with a teacher, there's a period of time in which they express very much like the teacher and 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 almost imitate the teacher. Uh, and then ultimately they start to relax into themselves and a an original voice starts to emerge. If you're fortunate enough to start having your own experiences uh, that confirm and reconfirm, um, then I think you can be more confident in, uh, in your understanding. Not that it is the only approach, not that it's the only metaphor, the only story, the only way to get to the center, but it's the one that you've learned and works for you. So that's what I have to share. How could I share what hasn't been my experience? So each of us who come from different experiences have a, a incredibly rich mosaic of sharings that we're all talking about the same thing, but from many, many, many different angles, many, many different doorways in. Yeah. There's one one question I wanted to ask you that was kind of came up, and it's been something that's arisen for us in conversations we've had with other teachers and writers in, from different traditions. Is that I find the the Gurdjieff work unique in that it has a very well defined and accessible psychological model, as you were describing. Yes, we've had conversations with <clears throat> teachers. I'm remembering. Uh, a conversation we had with John Wellwood, who recently passed away, who 
happened to, he was a Buddhist and he happened to coin the term uh, spiritual bypass. That's, that's one of his contributions to uh, uh, modern spiritual discourse. But he, he was a big proponent of bringing the psychological into Buddhism. And, and, and he, he had been a psychologist and his, his, his feeling was that how he understood Buddhism and spiritual practice in general was that it was very focused on the transcendental. And the challenge that he observed was that when people focus on the transcendental explicitly and ignore the psychological, that the uh, problems ensue, hence spiritual bypass. And it was it took us a while in the conversation to even recognize the problem, because in the Gurdjieff work, there is such a grounding in psychology in the sense of, of a practical psychology, like you are you are dealing with how you function as a psychological being long before you start to put lots of attention on the transcendental. So I'm wondering if you if that was something that you relate to in your experience, particularly because you had a yearning for the transcendental and you had the psychological training. When you found the Gurdjieff work, did you find that there was a really nicely balanced way of in which that all came together? Absolutely, because of Gurdjieff's insistence that we, here's the question, what am I, what are we? We are psychological entities in a body. But that psychological entity, uh, before it begins to, say, encounter, well, let, let me back up. We're constantly conditioned in a, in a Pavlovian sense by all of our experiences so that what we think of as our clear consciousness and our, our clear psychological thinking that we use to evaluate things like an experience with the transcendental is conditioned by all of our prior experiences. So it's not a clean slate at all. The Gurdjieff's brilliance from my perspective in recognizing this is the insistence for many, many of the initial years in the Gurdjieff training to learn how to gradually, more objectively observe your own thinking, your own reactions, your attitudes, your biases, learning to separate yourself in the observer position from what you're seeing. Mm -hmm. um, now, there's tremendous subtlety here, as you know, in some ways this is both true and not so true, but for the purposes of the training for a long time, coming to recognize that if I can see it, it's not the me who's seeing it. So this is a way to begin to get some distance from my reactions, which then allows me to become curious about their historical roots in terms of how did this get into me? Who taught me this? How did I come to have this attitude? Why do I have this reaction? Instead of just assuming it's natural. And if one is fortunate over a long period of time, learn to separate the wheat from the chaff. So although we may always have degrees of conditioned bias 
in our psychological sphere, it is definitely possible to develop what Keith Buzzle called um, a relatively objective autonomous awareness. And this relatively objective autonomous awareness doesn't so easily get trapped or what Gurdjieff would say identified with the reaction, with the belief. One can watch one's mind functioning, see how the mind is connected to the automatic nervous system reactions in the body, see how it influences what we typically call our feelings, which are really conditioned reactions based on our physiology, I think, and uh, learn not to trust what's in your own mind just because I think it, well, actually, just because it's in my head doesn't mean I'm the one thinking it. Um, you know, I'm a, there are noises outside. I don't say, oh, I'm the airplane or the bird. Mm -hmm. But if a thought flows through my head, I think it's my thought. Right. And in fact, if we really examine this, most of the stuff in our head, we didn't ask to be there. We didn't summon it up. It's distracting. It's got nothing to do with what's going on. And sometimes that's totally wrong. But if I identify with the voice in my head, uh, then I'm, I'm lost. And then the next voice comes along. And then the voice comes along. Oh. So uh, from my point of view, and I think uh, his student Maurice Nichol is actually more Ospensky's student, but uh, an incredibly important influence on me because he was both a Jungian and a Gurdjieffian, like me. You know, so we speak the same language. And he's also fascinated by esoteric Christianity, which I am also. So uh, Maurice Nichol is a real, real helpful source for me. Yeah, I wanted to. Yeah. I, I, I to get in here for a second. Um, I, I wanted to follow up on this because because what you've just described is sort of foundational as a as what I would understand a fourth way practitioner is exposed to and and develops in the course of early training is I think is a phrase or some some equivalent phrase that you used and yet you also prior to that discussion were talking about how you used Gurdjieff's work in your psychological practice I'm my my question to you is to what extent if any did you bring this um, Gurdjieff's insights and um, clarity about the psychological makeup um, in the way that you just described into your practice with your your uh, clients um, in your clinical practice. I'm just wondering how how you could. I mean, you spoke to this fact that you wouldn't you you know it would be inappropriate and probably unhelpful to use the Gurdjieffian language. Nevertheless, I'm wondering how and what to what extent you were able to infuse your interaction with um, the people you were working with in the psychological realm um, with this with just the sort of thing you've just described. Well, actually, it's quite easy and organic. Mm -hmm. Because from my point of view, um, modern psychology, political psychology, 
encompasses a lot of work ideas. Okay. Now, uh, I, I could only guess that maybe there were some of Gertrude's early pupils were psychologists and psychiatrists and began to find ways to introduce this. Um, it's something that I think Gestaltists uh, were discovering also. Mm-hmm. So we, we have a lot of models, um, particularly since the 60s, uh, and new age psychology out there that people have kind of heard about. So I could use that kind of language. Okay. For example, um, showing somebody, uh, very, actually for me, one of the easiest things to work with was anxiety and panic attacks. Okay. A lot of clinicians uh, found very difficult. Uh, one, because I had them myself, so I understood them. Mm-hmm. And I understood the mechanism and how to deal with them. So, for instance, uh, I would show somebody how they could, uh, how their thoughts could trigger this. So I'd have them relax. I never or rarely used um, anything that looked like a hypnotic induction. But I found ways to get people into that kind of state without having to, you know, have them stare at a swingy pendulum. Mm-hmm. So I'd say something like, okay, so go back to the time in your mind when X happened and describe to him what was happening and what you feel in your body. So they would, and I'd say, okay, now open your eyes. It's not happening here, is it? Uh, no. Where is it happening? Oh, it's happening in my mind. Oh, so why are you afraid now? Well, that's a good question. Because when I think of it, it makes me afraid. I say, well, okay. So let's try something else. Relax them again. Now think about something very pleasant or enjoyable. So what's happening in your body now? It feels much better. Now go back to the other thing. Oh, now it feels worse. Now go back. Oh, it feels better. What does that tell you? Oh. It tells me that I'm not helpless, that what I think influences what I feel, for example. And you could do it the other way around. Um, uh, someone's got a feeling and they don't know where it's coming from. So I say, all right, bring up the feeling. Okay? And now open your mind. I don't want you to think up anything, but let's see what associations float into your mind from times early in your life. This is early as you can recall when this, you had this feeling. Well, I don't remember. I'm not asking you to remember. I'm just asking you to sit present with the feeling and uh, open your mind and just tell me what happens. Oh, well, I don't know why I'm remembering this time when I was in third grade. Well, tell me about it. Oh, and then there's the subject. And so I began to show them how uh, the language of emotion is images and that the images they have in their head um, can be clues to this. So there were a lot of a lot of ways to try and bring it into a practical level in uh, the parlance of modern psychology. Because uh, if you really study Gersh's system, much of it will look like modern psychology. But he introduced this around 1912, 1913. And he said he'd been learning it over the past 20 years from who knows where in monasteries and you know, some distant stand somewhere in Asia. So obviously this had been around for a long time. I also had some, I'm remembering one experience, uh, I read a translation of 
an Egyptian text. Uh, and I realized as I was reading it, it was the work. These guys were my, my brothers. I knew what they were doing. Mm. I knew what they were trying to convey. So that and other uh, things that I came across in my reading suggested to me that uh, when he said this is a very old, old teaching, it's been around maybe since the dawn of humanity, uh, but it appears in different guises depending on the times, I saw that that was correct. So I didn't have any trouble translating it. I, I guess one of the... Uh, gifts of the mind I happen to be born with that I can't take any credit for is this ability to put complex ideas into some simple practical uh, way that people can connect with. I have nothing to do with it. It just falls into my head and if it seems useful, I share it. Sort of like that psychic. I just watch the theater in the mind and separate what has, what has to do with me from what doesn't, and if it doesn't have to do with me, maybe it has to do with them. Got it. Well, thank you, thank you, because I think this is uh, an interesting way to um, articulate how people can. I, th I think some people, when they when they first engage with uh, uh, Gurdjieff work, can be intimidated by the intellectual complexity. Um, that in you know in some of the books that they will encounter, um, as well as drawn into the emotional um, resonance that is also present in a lot of in a lot of the writings. Um, so, but I'm but I'm also I also want to invite you to talk a little bit about some of the beginning of your own training, not just not just reading the books, but um, mm -hmm working with the various people that you worked with early on when you encountered the Gurdjieff work, what, what, how did that um, arise for you, manifest, et cetera? Okay, but let me just say one more thing about reading. Uh, most people first encounter Spensky's book right. and uh, are frightened by it or uh, are given a copy of Beelzebub's Tales and have the same reaction I did the first time. <laughs> But there are, or, or John Bennett, I love John Bennett's writings. Well, I mean, I, I should just say for the benefit of listeners that the, the Spensky book you're talking about is In Search of the Miraculous. Yes, oh. In Search of the Miraculous, Fragments of an Unknown Teaching. I'll talk more about that in a moment. But uh, there's, there's a lot of literature out there now. Mm -hmm. um, I, my preference is to pretty much stick with uh, the writings of people who actually knew him. Mm-hmm. No, not that uh, later material isn't very useful, um, but no, we have the horse's mouth in his own writings, and we have the horse's stable in his primary pupils, and some of them are quite approachable. Some of the um, memoirs by the women who were with him, Fritz Peters' uh, couple of books are delightful. Maurice Nicole is very approachable because he, he talks a psychology that a lot of people can grasp. And uh, I've met people who uh, did not approach the work initially through the intellect, but uh, through the body, mm -hmm. through the feelings. Mm -hmm. And it, uh, those, all three doorways are equal in their legitimacy, sure. although intellectuals tend to disagree with that. But that's, <laughs> that's part of their intellectual hubris. Uh, so if, if uh, a, a book like Ospensky 
or Beelzebub is daunting, there are other ways to get into this. Uh, C.S. Knott has his two books on his experiences with Gurdjieff um, are very interesting uh, reads and you can see Gurdjieff's teaching and you learn a lot in a very conversational tone as not just shares uh, his experiences. So one need not take the intellectual plunge, particularly if one is more of an emotional type or uh, a body type. There are ways in through all three doors. Fair enough. So um, <clears throat> maybe, Robert, maybe you can reformulate that question you now want me to address a little more of my early training. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, you, you described the point where um, you had this, you picked up the Maurice Nicole book and had this sense of connection. Yes. And then were guided to um, work with uh, uh, someone who knew something about it, a colleague of yours that you didn't even know had this, had this yes. And what I'm, what I'm uh, asking is, how did that work proceed from your perspective? Was it, um, what, was, what was your experience of it? How did it infiltrate? I mean, we've, we've talked, you've already spoken about how it infiltrated into your practice, presumably as you went along, that is mm -hmm. your practice. Yes, yes. Um, but, um, but I'm wondering how it, all, how it penetrated into your, um, your daily life and what that, what that experience was like, because, it, you know, the, the way people enter the work is, is always unique, it, it seems to me. Um, in, in a certain kind of sense. And I'm wondering what your unique experience of that was. Well, I was given uh, In Search of the Miraculous to read after my initial excitement about Maurice mm -hmm. Nicole. And it was, it was just stunning. Well, I felt I'd come home. Uh, and that was the feeling when, uh, with uh, Nichols' book when I had the, the surrender experience. I felt I was home and I needed to understand everything that was in these books. But I didn't know what home was. I didn't know I'd been away from home. But th those were the words and that was the feeling. I was home. Uh, and uh, Spensky was, was just astounding. They were, he talked about things in a way that made sense of things that never made sense. I remember in particular when he talked about organic life as being a thin film smeared across the surface of the earth, the purpose of which was to transform energy. I, I was just blown away because it was true. I saw it. I'd never thought about it that way. Who could think such thoughts? But it was, it was amazing. <clears throat> and, but then I had another uh, mini crisis that was very useful. I came to a discussion about the moon, which I won't go into here, because mm -hmm. uh, I want people to listen to the rest of the interview. <laughs> <laughs> I remember where I was when I read it, and, and this other part of me stood up and said, that's it, this is ridiculous, this is nonsense, this is not even pseudoscience, you know, I'm out of here. And the other part said, wait, 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 hold on there, fella. 
what you've read up till now has been really interesting, hasn't it? Yeah, really has. And it's been very insightful. Yes. And this doesn't make any sense, does it? Absolutely not. It makes no sense. Well, maybe you don't understand what he's talking about. Why don't you just keep reading? So I took this idea that made no sense, and I put it up on a mental shelf. Mm -hmm. And I kept reading. And as the years went by, that shelf became really full. There are a lot of things up on that shelf. I didn't know what he was talking about, but the stuff that did resonate with me was so profound, I just kept going. And then every once in a while, I'd have an experience, and without my knowing it, one of those ideas would jump off the shelf into my lap. And I'd say, oh, this experience that I'm having right now, that is what that idea was about. Right. Now I get it. Okay. That makes sense. And in some ways... It was very clear, but I couldn't understand it because I hadn't had the experience. Now that I've had the experience, now I understand it. And that's why a lot of mystical stuff, religious stuff people talk about hadn't made any sense because I hadn't yet had the experience. Got it. Exactly. Thank you for that. Uh, you know, um, that is a very clear answer to my question. And, and I think it, um, hearing you articulate that for anyone who's, who's listening to how you just responded um, is uh, can be especially in these in 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 these days now when we are in a soup of ideas um, from you know uh, uh, media that we didn't formally have access to um, that it's really that that attitude that you just um, articulated having having decided to enact, that is, to, to not just say no, but to shelve, as you, to use your metaphor, to shelve, not reject, not accept, um, but wait. To hold. To hold, that's a good word, um, is, is something that's very, it, it's a very important demonstration, I think. Well, I think it, it's critical in it. One way I understand it is it demonstrates what Gurdjieff has tried to describe as one of the differences between what he says is our ordinary waking consciousness or waking sleep that we all think is the epitome of consciousness. And what he describes as the third state of consciousness. In the ordinary state of consciousness, we live in duality. It's either right or it's wrong. It's this or it's that. From a higher perspective, well, it's not like that at all. It's um, it's a little bit of this, it's a little bit of that, and it's something else also. And one of the practices uh, in the Gurdjieff work that you just really enunciated a different term is to, when confronted with a mystery, and not understanding is a mystery, you know, or confronted with a problem, is not to jump into it, not to run away from it, but to try and stay present in front of it and just let it be there. And you wait yeah. and you wait. And maybe at some point you get clarity. That's right. And, and, and I, and, um, you know, in, in 
Beelzebub's Tales, Gurdjieff, um, has a passage where he talks about how modern people have lost the ability to understand allegory. I think this is actually just just precisely um, attuned here to to what you just said, because um, a child can be fascinated by by a uh, a play or a recitation of a story, reading a book, a, a story book with a parent or something like that. And in many ways, we you know we we delude ourselves that as adults we're not still in in a um, in a state that um, that is similar to that. And we get hooked on these stories, identified, as you said, and we real and 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 wisdom comes from realizing that that multiple stories may be operating at the same time. And um, when we can attune ourselves to that level of reality, we've we've gotten bigger, as in your early dream um, expanded. Yeah. This is another one of Gurdjieff's ideas that has just changed my life. It's the concept of relativity. Mm -hmm. That we really do live at different psychological levels or perspectives or attitudes. And that what makes no sense at one level makes sense at another level. Mm -hmm. If you can rise above a problem and look down on it, you see that it wasn't a knot at all. Right. You know, that, that, um, it's not either or. And this uh, corresponds um, to so many of our experiences. You know, and going back to my clinical practice, for instance, um, so let's say somebody had an issue with, with uh, their mother, their father, their brother, whatever. Uh, long ago, certain thing happened and affected them and they made a certain interpretation. And I said, well, let's look at it from a, a different perspective. Tell me what you understand about their psychological background. What did they go through? How might they have come to this point? And do you think they did it to produce this particular effect, for instance? That's just one of many, many kind of examples. Or, oh, tell me about a time when you you suddenly had an insight and you realized that you'd mistaken something or you saw it from a different angle. Well, every, everyone has that. Said, ah. So this is what we're talking about. Just because you believe it at the moment in your head and you have this reaction doesn't mean if we can't find another perspective, that might not change. So part of the way of healing from uh, trauma uh, is to eventually to see it from another perspective. It reminds me of... Uh, the apocryphal story of the Buddha who's approached by a woman with her dead child who says, please help me understand why my child died. And he said, I will do something for me first. Go into the village, knock on every door. And when you find the house that has not been touched by death, come back and tell me which one. Hmm. And then that changes things. Right. Yeah. And Gurdjieff says that we really do have the capacity uh, to live psychologically from different attitudinal and understanding perspectives that change the, the entire sense of the meaning of my life, other people's lives, why people do the things they do, which really can leave me 
relatively free of the typical kind of emotional reactivity that we see all around us. Everyone takes things every, so, so many things personally, and they're affronted, and they're offended, and uh, because I'm a good person, if you have a different viewpoint than I do, obviously you can't also be good, because you know, I live in a world of either or, good or bad, and if your point of view is really different than mine, and I'm the good one, you must be the bad one. So it's very, very difficult to put myself into someone else's position and say, well, if I had their experiences from their perspective, how they're viewing it, it makes a lot of sense. But so does mine. So what's going on here is much more subtle and complex than the simple solution of I'm right, you're wrong. Yeah. So the, the question was that uh, in the Gurdjieff work, there is a notion or an idea of metabolism of you know the, the specifically we take in impressions and with the right conditions of attention we're able to transmute those impressions into higher substances and those higher substances are the substance of our deepening sense of being and that's i i what I, I wanted to ask your sense of that because that's a very different model than a lot of the models that we see in uh, at least pop psychology with the implication that you can just do something. You can make things happen. You can you apply a technique. And in the Gurdjieff work, it feels as though that the results of the practice are something that organically arise, but the practice isn't a direct doing of making something happen. You engage in a new habits of attention, and out of those habits grows something new. And I'm, I'm just wondering how that lands with you in terms of your own experience. Um, very accurately. I mean, this uh, the statement of Gurdjieff's that man cannot do that is very confusing for most people for many, many, many years. So we think of doing as a physical action in the material world being able to make objects move or uh, force people to behave in different ways uh, through our outward manifestations. But that's not what he's talking about, as I understand it. He's talking about something interior. Because what I want from other people or what I want in the moment out in life or the ways in which I go about it, he would say, um, are primarily conditioned. Their habits, there's no freedom in them. There's the illusion that I have made the decision and I am doing the action. The question is, well, where does that decision come from? Well, it comes from this reaction I just got because you looked at me that way. You know, and I don't like people looking at me that way. You know, I hated it when my teachers did it. I hated it when my dad did it. And here's the way I deal with it. Well, he'd say, that's not a doing. <laughs> that's just a, a happening of uh, conditioned, linked uh, responses, just like Pavlov's dogs. What a real man, he, would, he talks about the difference between a real man and a, a man in quotation marks. A real man is a man who uh, is conscious inside 
of these reactions, who understands their linkages in this past, who can make a decision whether or not to allow the manifestation to occur, and to bring it to bear upon the situation a deeper or higher understanding uh, of what's happening. Because it's, I see that this is my own reaction. It's not something that you are causing. It's not something you are making happening to me. Uh, you're simply a trigger or a reminder. You're a conditioned stimulus. This is something inside of me. So, so the solution to the problem doesn't isn't to change you. It's to change something in me. Now that doesn't mean that if I come to understand the historical connection between what I interpret as that look on your face that reminds me of the my father used to do that would make me so frustrated. Uh, that doesn't mean you're not smirking. Or you may very well be having some gas. It's got nothing to do with it. <laughs> Even if you are smirking, it has to do with your conditioning. Why would you, why would you smirk at me? You know, who, who the hell do you think you are? So it, it's about me. It's about me. And the solution uh, to my relationship with other people and to the world is to uh, find this deeper sense so that I can see uh, past my conditioned reactions to what my, my true sense of what is necessary or appropriate in the situation might be. So Gurdjieff, coming back to this question of digestion, one of the things that really astounded me uh, that then I could verify for myself was Gurdjieff's uh, statement that we really have three foods that like the rest of organic life, we are receivers and transmitters and transformers of energy, you know, just like a radio or a generator. And that the obvious source of uh, energy for us comes through the food we eat, the organic food. But then he goes on to say, well, there's a second food that he calls air. Well, we can certainly see physiologically that if I don't have physical food, you know, I, I might last six or seven weeks before I die. If I don't have air, I'll last four minutes. But he means, he doesn't mean just the air we're breathing. There's, I think there's much more to it than that. But then he goes on to say, there's this third food that he calls impressions. And that if impressions stop, we die immediately. Well, I mean, how do you confirm that? <laughs> Well, we can't because even in sensory deprivation experiments, or if you, you do that for people long enough to become psychotic, they're having all sorts of experiences. Yeah. So they're still experiencing. And the type and quality of the impression that then feeds our mind and feeds our feelings that then has its physiological reactive component, so the quality and content of that uh, determines for us Subjectively, the kind of world we think we're living in and the kind of person we think we are. And um, if you alter your view of the kind of world you think you're living in and the kind of person you are, everything changes. So the solution to my problems really lie inside of me and learning how I came to see things the way I do 
and being open to the possibility of learning to see differently, and then testing for myself whether that that parallax view doesn't change things for me. If I find it does, then I've made a very great discovery. But how do I get to that point if everything that happens inside of me, every manifestation, thought, reaction, I think is me, truly me, and I've decided to do for myself, and I'm master of my own ship. Well, it's never going to occur to me to take a look at those things because they're just true. Why are they true? Because they're happening to me and I did it. There's no internal space. There's no, there's no um, breathing room between the reactive thought, emotion, or behavioral manifestation and the capacity to see inside what's happening. In his words, uh, there's identification. Uh, the consciousness or the attention is eaten or submerged by the stimulating impression and absorbs, is absorbed into it so that it eats me, it eats my attention, it becomes bigger and stronger, more real in my perspective. If I'm able to draw my perspective outside of it and see it as a separate conditioned phenomenon, then that information, plus whatever else that moment tells me about myself, becomes interesting food for me, and the energy comes out of the impression into me, my developing psychological perspective. So at any given moment, either I am being eaten or I am eating in terms of uh, what my attention falls upon. And if I'm not my attention, what am I? Uh, said the Buddhists have this wonderful saying, uh, I have a body, but I'm not my body. I have feelings, but I'm not my feelings. I have thoughts, but I'm not my thoughts. Well, suppose that's actually true. Then what am I? And can I confirm that? Gurdjieff's method gives us a way of confirming that. One of the wonderful things that about Gurdjieff from the very beginning that the, the skeptic in me was he said, don't believe anything anybody tells you, including me. Don't believe anything you read, including what I write. Only what you can confirm for yourself is of any practical use to you. But of course, that confirmation is tricky. Because what part of me am I confirming it with? If I confirm it with my own prejudices, I'm right where I was before nothing new has happened. That is tricky. Very tricky. And, and, and though, uh, you know, I, when I first in, uh, encountered uh, work ideas, this um, commitment to the sense that, that I have to confirm it myself is, is absolutely central and, or, or, or critical, I should say. And, and, um, and I think it's something that can nourish a genuine self-examination, a productive self-examination. Yeah. Um, we, we actually, strangely, we only have a few minutes left, uh, maybe 10 minutes or so. Um, and, um, you know, I wanted to touch on a, a topic that, uh, was the, the occasion for us to meet, which was the formation of this interesting group that currently is calling itself the Seekers Cafe. And I wanted to speak a little bit about that because I think, uh, it's an interesting project and it, and it, and it speaks to partly the question of 
how do you make this kind of esoteric work available in a way that doesn't, as it were, dumb it down, but also gives it the possibility of reaching people of you know similar uh, interests like ourselves uh, who might not have had a chance to encounter it. And so I'm interested in your thoughts on, in that you've been described as one of the sort of original visionaries for this project. I'm interested in how you articulate it, how, what you see the possibility is. <clears throat> well, it, it um, the idea germinated at the All and Everything International Humanities Conference in Portland, Oregon, I guess 2017, 18. I lose track of the years. Used to lose track of days. Um, <laughs> but I was talking with uh, Stefan Sewell and Federico Balsa and Richard Webb and uh, individually, and I thought, these are really interesting minds. They would enjoy each other. And one of the things I've discovered about myself, uh, particularly lately, at my age, I'm wondering what I've been doing in life and what what if anything I can contribute in the future. It does seem to be one of the organic things about my personality is that I like people and um, I like connecting them. So I'm, I'm sort of uh, an enzyme, you know, and um, so I say to people, hey, you guys would have a lot in common and then they get together and they do amazing things and I don't have to do anything. I just introduce them. You're, you're the transmitter molecule between neurons. Maybe something like that, and then I, maybe I float off and something else gets connected. I'm, I'm still trying to work it out. But uh, I thought it, it was just interesting to talk. And a big question for a lot of people in recent years in, in my community, as probably as in others, is what, what is the future of esoteric teaching? What's the future, particularly of the Gurdjieff work that I'm interested in? It's, this particular contribution to this larger field. And so a lot of conversations about that. So that's one of the things we started talking about. And we decided we'd continue our conversations on Zoom. And then we thought of other people who had interesting minds that might resonate. And so we, uh, we've been talking over a period of a year. And I didn't know what would come out of it. Um, I felt we just waited uh, you know, organically something would emerge or nothing and it would dissipate as many things do but something now seems to be emerging and uh, all of these people have something real inside of them and are really interested in sharing so how do we share that's the question and uh, out of our conversations uh, then the blending of all these ideas and impulses has come the current um, manifestation that uh, we'll see if this is uh, makes it all worthwhile this Seekers Cafe website so we're looking for a way to to share with people but you're right how do you draw people now different in Gertrude's time because there wasn't a lot out there we certainly didn't have an internet we didn't have television people would actually go to lectures and talks and they would be unique experiences so you had to be there or you'd miss it there were no recordings and now we have uh, this worldwide supermarket of everything from the sublime to the ridiculous. Uh, and how do people 
know what they're looking at. How do you sift the wheat from the chaff? So we, hopefully if we can put out something that resonates with a real degree of validity uh, through the people involved, and maybe some folks will find us. Maybe they won't. Maybe we'll be helpful. Maybe we'll just enjoy each other's company. This is another question of doing. Yeah. Who knows what's going to happen? We can't make anything happen, but we can try and bring uh, the quality of our presence to bear. And then whatever's going to happen is more likely to reflect that higher quality of presence than if we brought a lower quality of presence. And it, and it may cause it may cause a similar vibration in people who can feel it. It's an interesting problem because um, when there's so much available, it acts as its own kind of uh, blind. And I noticed this in Northern California because there's so many different traditions available that it's, it's, it's almost as though people make their choices and then they're not really open to anything else or they, you know, they don't, um, they're not as open to being touched by the new because they have their thing that they do. And we see this flavor a little bit because we have a spiritual bookstore. So we're something of the uh, hub and the wheel of uh, spiritual seekers in our particular community. But they don't always, they don't talk so much together. And we see our store as sort of a, an occasion or a place where people can come together. Certainly this radio show is intended to be a context in which different traditions can come together. And, and what uh, I'm excited about with the Seekers Cafe is that it has a similar uh, mission to be a resource in a way in which people can connect. And I suspect that um, connection and uh, communication and transmission is going to be uh, more distributed in the world in the next phase, partly just because um, there's technologies now that allow people to connect in ways that was impossible in previous generations. And that, that will do something different. I mean, obviously it has its downsides as we see uh, in the uh, Twitterverse, but, but in a teaching sense, I think it has a, the real possibility. Well, I, I'll, I'll just go back to the word you used, um, even uh, resonate. If something resonates, that's when a connection is, yeah. is, is possible. And so, um, so as you said, if, if you're vibrating at a, at a, um, particular level, people who have the potential also to do that, um, will find it, it seems to me, or at least that, that's, that's the hope. We'll, we'll find out if this is a, a, a if this particular methodology facilitates that or not. But if it doesn't work that way, I don't know how it could work. Well, I, I made this discovery later in life. I wish I'd known it earlier when I was kind of lonely and felt disconnected. If I just follow my own interests, sooner or later, I'll find people who are following that same interest. And that's, yeah. how, I, that's how I find my family. I have yeah. to follow my heart. And uh, it'll lead somewhere. So in one sense, it's a metaphor I used a number of years ago. Is that it's like a watering hole. If you're thirsty, just go for the water and you'll see some other animals drinking the water and you strike up a conversation. <laughs> Indeed. Um, well, um, at, at, at your bookstore, do you, uh, 
occasionally host conversations. Absolutely. Uh, Actually, that's uh, the tea part, right? <laughs> the tea cookies and uh, no, we have, we have, a, we have a, a Thursday evening series. It's on, uh, uh, on hold for the summer at the moment. But um, basically every Thursday night, there's someone will come and do, do some kind of um, talk, discussion, lecture. And it's usually it's usually a conversation with the you know audience, the audience yeah. members who show but up. We we sometimes do uh, talks there, or we have uh, you know uh, authors come in, teachers come in, and and do talks. And you know we're, it's it's probably for our community. So some some of the talks aren't ones that we would go to. <laughs> but but if we, we do, weren't we, hosting the store. Yeah, <laughs> we weren't hosting the store. They were, you you have to make money. But uh, some of the talks are actually quite interesting. Right. So, um, although it's always better to be in person, Seekers Cafe might give you a way of uh, having some Zoom conversations with people who can't get there. Yeah. And then people can just sit and interact and have tea in our own localities. It's maybe that's part of this new world of communication we're experimenting with. An interesting yeah. idea. Well, as as the Seekers Cafe develops. We'll see what what uh, what we can do with, with that um, with bringing that into our physical uh, bricks and mortar place. Yeah, because I, I think that I think I appreciate the idea. It's a good one. So uh, we're 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 pretty much at the end of our time here, and I just wanted to invite you to if you have let, a website or, or uh, let people know how to contact you. Any listeners who may wish to do so. Um, I don't know if you want to just refer them to. This nascent Seekers Cafe that we're, is coming together, but um, that may be the best place. I don't know. You you tell us. Well, I think that's the place to start to contact the Seekers Cafe, and if they have an interest in talking to me. Then we can arrange that. Excellent. All right. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, the time has flown by, as it usually does uh, uh, for us. Anyway, I hope. I hope. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it as well. It, yeah. Yeah, I, th I thought we had another hour to go. So. Yeah. <laughs> That's usually how it that, works. That, that is, that, that is the, the, you know, people say, how, what am I going to talk about for an hour and 45 minutes? I mean, can yeah. there be anything more interesting than listening to yourself talk? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, we appreciate it. I feel like we just uh, uh, started the conversation, so we look forward to uh, future such conversations. Good. We will continue. All Thanks right. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we've been playing a Zoom conversation recorded on July 20th, 2019 with Stephen Aronson. In 1979, Steve co-authored a pioneering book, The Stress Management Workbook, An Action Plan for Taking Control of Your Life and Health, with Michael Macia, M.D., in the late 1990s, he co-founded Mental Health Associates of Maine, a multidisciplinary psychological psychiatric practice. Steve retired from clinical practice after 43 years in 2013. In, eight, in 1982, Steve experienced a vision that was an overture to a series of synchronous events culminating in his discovery of the Gurdjieff work. He has dedicated his inner search to the methods of G.I. Gurdjieff since that time, accepting the responsibilities of leading groups studying this system. He has made a number of presentations to the All and Everything International Humanities Conference and participates in groups in Portland, Maine, Moscow, Russia, and Toronto, Canada. 
He believes that only through direct experience can such ideas find real meaning so that the system becomes the teacher. His primary objective has been to discover and share the practical application of these ideas and methods to the inner world of people. Steve is a founding member of the Seekers Cafe, a website supporting an online community dedicated to creating an effective portal to genuine spiritual practice. In two weeks on The Mystical Positivist, Rob and I will speak with Peter Haas, minister at the Church of Conscious Harmony, a contemplative Christian community in Austin, Texas. The teaching of the church stands on two legs. One, the, a, the contemplative Christian tradition as presented by Father Thomas Keating and others, and two, the esoteric Christian fourth way, known as the work of inner Christianity, as presented by Morris Nicole, G. I. Gurdjieff, and others. The Church of Conscious Harmony is firmly founded on these teachings, but is not limited by them or to them. Participants are free to reach deeply into all traditions and spiritual traditions for wisdom and inspiration, using these gifts to illumine our own religious roots and to enliven our spiritual practice. The contemplative Christian tradition is primarily supported at the Church through the teaching and practice of Centering Prayer and Lectio Divina, as well as study in the, of the works of Thomas Keating, Thomas Merton, Richard Rohr, Bernadette Roberts, and other mystics. The church is also, also has an active Centering Prayer Retreat ministry. The work of inner Christianity is primarily expressed at the church through the study of the works of Morris Nicole, Rodney Collin, G.I. Gurdjieff, P.D. Ospensky, and others. Classes, small groups, and the Gurdjieff movements are ways that the work of inner Christianity comes alive as an active agent in the transformative process. Tune in for that show on Saturday, August 3rd from 4 to 6 p.m. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday. It could be a balloon.